Taking care of young males is often a challenge, since most young men don't visit their healthcare providers on a regular basis. Through a collaboration among the American Sexual Health Association, School-Based Health Alliance, Healthy Teen Network, and the Partnership for Male Youth, we've developed a tool for healthcare providers that is meant to trigger questions they may want to ask during encounters with young male patients, even those in the office for a simple sports physical. This instrument for providers is a companion piece to Your Health is Your Power, a self-assessment tool for adolescent males to get them thinking about issues related to sexual health, immunizations, and other issues such as mental health. You'll find both tools by going to ashasexualhealth.org, clicking on the Health Providers tab, and then clicking Tools for Treating Adolescent Male Patients. To explore issues related to the examination of the young male patient, we're talking with Dr. David Bell, who is an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics and Population and Family Health at the Columbia University Medical Center. Dr. Bell is also the medical director of the Young Men's Clinic at the New York Presbyterian Hospital. Dr. Bell, thank you for taking time to talk with us today. Thank you. First, I want to ask you about building rapport with patients. And patients of any age might have difficulty discussing sensitive personal health information with their health care provider, and this can be especially difficult for young people. Talk about what providers can do to create a welcoming environment for young male patients, building trust and encouraging honest discussions. So I think that with any patient, but especially including the adolescent male patient, much of the trust and uh, sort of um, building of rapport starts almost when they see you for the first time, whether it's interacting with other patients in the waiting room or in the hallway or with your staff. They get a sense of who you are and uh, your personality to some degree and how you treat people. So I, I would say that as clinicians, we need to be very cognizant of our sort of professional uh, relationships even in the hallway and outside because especially teenagers are taking note of it from the start. As we as we call our patients in, it's I think the uh, key issue is to treat them with respect and sort of honor who they are and whether they're if they start off being in your office with the parent, introduce yourself to them first, then introduce yourself to um, the parent and sort of at some point discuss with the parent about um, confidentiality and the, the need at some point to establish a one-on-one -on -one relationship with uh, the adolescent, and in, in this case, the adolescent male, and ask them at a certain point to step out uh, in respect of that sort of process. Um, and then with the young person, it's really about list, asking questions, listening to them, uh, asking questions openly and with a sort of sense of, that you're curious with a uh, respectful curiosity uh, about who they are and what they like and uh, who they are as a person. You can state the um, confidentiality statement and sort of say what you will need to keep confidential and what you may not be able to. Um, <clears throat> then you start, you can ask the sort of more personal and sensitive questions uh, such as uh, any questions about sexual, their sexual life 
to, to be specific. Do you ever encounter parents who are reluctant to uh, leave the room? I have occasionally. Uh, usually, it's a red flag for something going on in the family and in the relationship. Um, but yes, I have um, incurred those issues. But even so, um, most of the time, I'm I'm able to talk with a parent to to conv- to tell them I'm not really trying to keep anything from you. It really is. They are developing into uh, not only the the adolescent as they grow older, and uh, but also as an emerging adult. And so it is appropriate that they start to get the experience and also develop the rapport with their physician alone and not through their parents. I want to ask you about the physical exam. Uh, would you speak to the components that should be a priority uh, with the adolescent and young adult male physical exam? In the context of the adolescent and young adult male physical exam, nothing's very different than the general physical, except the part that I would um, stress is that in my experience here for the past 16 years, when there are many young men that come in that are either in their late teens or early 20s that have really never experienced a genital exam. And I find that quite interesting because, uh, one, it's it's a normal part of, of their body and it needs to be treated as normal and needs to be tra- treated as something that's just as important to examine in a sense as your arm or your heart. Um, It's not necessarily something that needs to be done at every visit no matter what. There is sort of the context of when uh, you do the exam, such as um, annual physicals and particularly if they have any concerns, but uh, it is important to include it. So I would imagine that uh, the discomfort with the physical exam could be especially acute. What what can providers do to make young men more comfortable with that aspect of their visit? I, I guess I've been in my position for too long in the young men's clinic. It it turns out I think that um, many of the young men somewhat either know that uh, what that we focus on sexual and reproductive health, uh, so it, there's no longer as much of or any uh, sort of hesitation about that we need to do the exam at certain times and in in certain contexts. However, I'd say as clinicians that may not have been incorporating um, the general exam in their routine physicals, uh, it really is sort of discussing that it's a normal part of the exam. There, there are very specific medical reasons why we do the exam. One is uh, checking for testicular cancer. One is uh, checking for any lumps such as hydrocele's or epididymal cysts. Different sort of contexts that are in the in the scrotum that are something to be noted. Not always serious. Sometimes very serious. Um, and then making sure, especially if a young man is sexually active, 
uh, inspecting the skin for genital warts or other sort of uh, skin lesions as well as um, lymphadenopathy overall. There have been contexts where in the past guys have sort of tried to defer the exam, but when you actually, when I've talked them through it, I've found genital warts, which they were concerned about but seemed to have so much sort of angst about the genital exam that uh, it, their worry over the sort of skin lesions or they discounted that they were anything of note just because of their lack of experience with, um, with the lesions themselves. Thinking beyond the physical exam, let's talk about other issues unique to young males that providers should be thinking about and talking about with their patients, um, starting with assessing the mental health and emotional state. What are the key messages there? I think there are many opportunities to assess and many sort of um, suggestions that we should always assess the mental health of all of our patients, um, in, including depression and anxiety. And many clinicians are opting to either do the uh, PHQ-9 or uh, uh, adolescent equivalent of the uh, depression scale. And I would say it's incredibly important to ask and talk to guys about it, not necessarily stop with those scales, but engage them in the conversation around it. What I find is really is specifically important for engaging males around mental health, there if they sort of subscribe, whether consciously or uh, just unconsciously through our societal messages around some the masculinity ideals they usually uh, will tend to be stoic and usually keep some of many of their emotions bottled up which isn't healthy for their mental health as well as their physical health and sort of and having those conversations to sort of discuss why it's important to talk or to do things in a healthy way to get things off of your chest and sort of process them and deal with um, their mental health and deal with their problems and issues um, proactively is better for their health. It's really important. Let me ask you about diet and exercise. How would you guide a conversation there? I think they're two different uh, groups of guys, if I were to and it's, this isn't an absolute, obviously, but they're the young guys who really want to be fit and the athletes that are fit and uh, wanting to exercise a lot and possibly even go to the extreme of using um, hormones or uh, to enhance their muscular development. So I think the messages about diet and exercise are very different for them and obviously very different about uh, anabolic steroid use and supplements, uh, but overall they are a very health conscious group and sort of help them understand diet and exercise in a very specific way. Many of those young men are very attuned to their diet, very attuned to sort of uh, the healthy context of diet, including using omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids, so their HDL protective cholesterol levels are incredibly high in, in my experience. So I think they're a very specific group that you just 
we as clinicians need to uh, foster continuation of their exercise and of their best habits of their di uh, diet and then sort of manage and manage their expectations and their perceptions about use of supplements and uh, anabolic steroids. Now there's the other sort of dichotomized, the, there's the group of guys who are obese or morbidly obese who think that being big is good and healthy and that they don't necessarily feel good being uh, smaller. And so that is a very different um, sort of discussion. And, and most of the time, I would argue for those guys as well as sort of uh, the middle group, the big issue is about eating fruit, incorporating fruits and vegetables in their diet on a regular basis and the health benefits of incorporating fruits and vegetables on a regular basis, uh, then it's, the I would argue, the main portion from a male standpoint is portion control uh, and sort of not not being sort of culturally propelled to, to think that eating excessively is being a man. And so one is eating meat and sort of uh, sort of meat consciousness is sort of synonymous with being eating manly as well as eating a lot and sort of figuring out how to s switch those messages to say being healthy is not necessarily eating meat all the time and eating more fruits and vegetables, but also being healthy is having a better portion control and sort of managing and understanding when you're hungry as well as when you're uh, sort of satiated, not stuffed. Do you encounter eating disorders very often with young male patients? Overall, eating disorders are a rare group of individuals, and I have in my past, but and it's according to the spectrum of eating disorders that you that sort of we're talking about. So some disordered eating in the context we can sort of even talk about uh, bodybuilders and weightlifting and sort of if as well as at times and then specifically for certain types of sports that need um, young men to uh, meet a certain weight for a meet they can have disordered eating patterns that may not be a true eating disorder in the uh, in the classic sense of like anorexia nervosa or bulimia. And then there are a small subset of young men that do uh, have uh, eating disorders in that sort of category of anorexia nervosa and bulimia. And those are rare. I have come in contact with them and had them uh, as patients, uh, but it is not, it's not uh, common for me. Let me ask about substance use, and there's a lot there. You've got tobacco, alcohol, you've got drug use, which you can further break up into drugs like marijuana versus harder drugs perhaps like crack and heroin. What guidance would you offer providers when they're sort of doing this assessment with their young men? My guidance is really to ask about it, talk about it, and um, sort of understand where they are with it. I would it is a, according to their population uh, that they're working with, but I would also argue that many of the substance uses 
span all of the socioeconomic groups. So the wealthy young men who we think from the outward appearance, appearance may be seemingly on the straight and narrow, they they have the money and the access to some some of the drugs that we might not think of all at all times and on the on the other end of the socioeconomic uh spectrum even though they may have more access to marijuana than some of the other drugs so it's, just, it's really sort of understanding and knowing your population but opening up the conversation and sort of talking about or having conversations with your young men about all drugs. I want to move now to chat about immunizations. Specifically, I want to ask about the human papillomavirus vaccine. Um, HPV vaccination is recommended routinely for both male and female adolescents and young adults, but uptake is lagging, especially with males. Only about 40% of girls have received all three doses of the HPV vaccine. And for boys, the number is a paltry 22% or so, even though that trajectory seems to be moving upwards. But still, would you talk a bit about why are HPV vaccine rates so low? The United States is fairly um, unique in its attitudes around uh, HPV. And this is not only the public attitude, but also the provider attitude around HPV vaccine. We have to somewhat right and wrong uh, associated with sexual activity. And that and it has that's in a sense why it's lagged for girls and particularly as the research incorporated boys in having positive value for giving it to males uh, which was obvious, which was, as we know, later than the uh, recommendations for girls. Guys are catching up, but that's one of the reasons why they're catching up. But the reasons both are not being vaccinated at the rates that we would hope uh, are because of providers' biases and and sometimes uh, parents' biases about whether their child needs the vaccine at the time that it is recommended. And many I've heard not only parents, but also heard of clinicians that are delaying the HPV vaccine because the, the perception that that particular kid won't be sexually active for some time. However, the science behind HPV vaccination is that giving it early uh, has better immunogenicity rates um, and responses for both girls and boys. And in fact, boys actually have a higher immunogenicity response, which is um, really promising. What do we need to do to support providers in more proactively offering this vaccine? The CDC and other organizations are really trying to support providers by giving them messaging to speak with uh, parents um, and sort of also suggesting to include the HPV vaccine in the conversation with other vaccines equally and not to include it as a side or an additional option, uh, which is when the HPV vaccine uh, gets left off or deferred and deferred um, without sort of coming back to it in a timely fashion. 
So if you were talking with a parent who is reluctant to have their child, especially their son, given this conversation, vaccinated against HPV, what what would you tell them? Just like you want um, your your kid to get protected against tetanus, which they do every 10 years, and get their measles, mumps, and rubella shots and their meningitis shots. Uh, we need to protect our young people, uh, especially including our young men, uh, against HPV. And if um, there's a certain sort of thought that we're giving it just uh, two guys only to protect females understand that that's not necessarily true. The HPV vaccine does protect against cancer and genital warts for males as well. And that's an important point because the perception about this vaccine for the longest time and to an extent it's still true is that this is a, a, a female vaccine for cervical cancer and it's certainly that but it's much more. It's, it is much more and the What's phenomenal that we haven't, um, I guess our clinicians have not uh, sort of grappled with is that uh, other countries, particularly Australia, has seen uh, incredible decreases in cervical cancer and genital warts on a population level because of their uh, distribution of HPV vaccines to all adolescents. So keeping in the theme of sexual health, we'll expand the conversation a bit to talk about sexual health and relationships. And, you know, that probably engenders discomfort for both patient and provider alike. Um, Tim, are, are providers well-versed in sexual health subjects, do you think? Many providers are not well-versed in uh, talking about sexual health and relationships. Um, actually, just even as you speak about that, sexual health and relationships are usually not even talked about in the same context. It's like it's either sexual health or it's relationships, but it's never sort of both in the context of each other. Um, we're hope I hope that the new cohorts of medical students are being um, trained overall in being comfortable with talking about relationships and sexual health. But overall, uh, it has it has never been a major focus of our uh, our professional education. And I would say that for myself, it became more comfortable as I kept doing it. Uh, and sort of in adolescent health and adolescent and young adult health, it's such a priority to speak about sexual health and relationships that the more I did it, the more comfortable I became with it. But it, was, it, it wasn't uh, inherently comfortable. So it sounds like to a degree it's just a matter of uh, uh, repetition. You know, the more you do it, perhaps the more natural it becomes. Very true. I mean, if... In the United States, we're very um, reticent about speaking about sex and all the implications about sex and, and speaking about sexual health is um, is tied into our our ideas and feelings around talking about sex. And, and in this area, there really are a lot of things to discuss with young men, sexually transmitted infections, contraception, matters of violence and consent. Um, you know, that's a lot to do in, a, in an exam that you know, may be fairly short. Um, what are the key questions to ask the best messages to impart? You don't have to do it in every, in every visit every time. And you can also uh, hopefully over time 
have conversations about each of those issues. And so I would say that for sexually transmitted diseases, sexually transmitted infections, it's really important to engage the young men in conversations about what they've heard about and what they um, somewhat what they know. I use the uh, sort of concept of what they've heard about um, and ask them that because they may not know and they've heard a lot of things and it kind of, it in a sense, can have them save face for not knowing. But it's about imparting information and my point to them is like, you're my patient now. I want you to leave my office smarter than when you were uh, when you came in. And hopefully, by having this discussion, we can do this. And so I engage them in a conversation that is a back and forth. Hopefully, sometimes it has humor that we can laugh about uh, things, which sort of breaks the ice and creates builds that rapport and creates the trust as well. And sort of gives I give them specific messages about what a guy would see or feel when uh, with each of the infections, as well as um, having them tell me, uh, talk me through the steps of using a condom and what are the issues uh, to be concerned about when the condom breaks, particularly if they're having sex with females and what sort of are the options. Um, And within the context of all of this, uh, uh, speak to the importance of knowing if they're having sex with female partners, then that they should know about what contraception their partners are on and understand their, or break any myths uh, that they might have about female contraception. Uh, and for STIs, just understanding, for males who have sex with males, understanding about new prevention strategies of post-exposure prophylaxis and pre-exposure prophylaxis and sort of uh, STI testing overall. Let's talk for uh, a moment about gender and sexual identity. What should trigger a provider to explore these areas with a patient? To some extent, we should explore it with all patients at certain times, particularly our younger patients, younger adolescents. As our guys get older, in particular, sort of working with males, it really becomes sort of the context of your clinic as well as how you interact with them and how they interact with you sort of I my experience which I don't have a large experience working with transgender but I uh, patients but I do have a handful of patients that are transgender uh, and have gender and sexual identity issues are concerns and so especially one patient that I recall uh, he had started wearing different items of clothing that uh, signaled to me that something was changing. And each visit, there was uh, something slightly different and more than before. And I ended up asking him, was there a change in how he wanted me to refer to him? And whether it's, you know, pronouns, what have you, which are, is the sort of the best um, from what I understand, the sort of best practices of starting to have conversations um, with individuals that are changing or thinking about their gender and sexual identity. And he actually at that point said no, and I saw him maybe once or twice more, and then he was. I lost him to follow up for about four 
four years or so. And then he came back to me, but he was no longer. He had gone through some changes and was now a, a con- he was calling himself female, and uh, I now know I now treat her uh, as a female, but uh, in my clinic, as the young men's clinic, where she feels comfortable coming, and she's referred a number of her other transgender patients as well as um, their their sexual partners, and so it's been that's been my experience, but it is. Uh, has been mostly a trigger while working with the patient and sort of um, getting a sense that they're they are in transition. And what a fortunate patient to have a provider in a clinic where they do feel comfortable so much so that they refer others there. And when I was listening to you talk about that, I um, flash back to something you said at the beginning of our conversation about like when you're first introducing yourself from meeting the uh, the patient and the parents are there to talk to the patient first and to establish a sense of rapport and respect and it sounds like that's you're just continuing with that and that's that probably something that, that just can't be emphasized strongly enough. Dr. David Bell of Columbia University, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. This is fascinating and uh, I hope you'll come back and talk with us again. I think there's thank a lot you. to explore here, so thank you so much. Both the provider and patient checklist we referenced at the beginning of this tutorial are linked on the landing page for this uh, episode, and you can find them also online at ashasexualhealth.org. Thank you for listening, and if you have comments or questions, please direct them to us. The email address is info at ashasexualhealth.org.